You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. We're concluding our sermon series in the book of Titus. We're at Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. Please follow along as I read God's word to us. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissents, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend winter there. Do your best to to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful." All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we do ask now that your grace would be with us, and that your word, which is your kindness towards us, would be yet one of those means by which we taste and experience your grace and become a people transformed by it. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Uh, The 1995-1996 NHL season is the first hockey season I remember being excited for. My hometown team, the St. Louis Blues, had never won a Stanley Cup, but they had made some incredible moves in the offseason, which started with acquiring Mike Keenan as not only head coach, but general manager. Keenan, of course, is Iron Mike Keenan. He's a hard coach, but he was a winner, and he was coming off a Stanley Cup win with the Rangers. He quickly made some trades, some which were uh, people were nervous about. He traded Brendan Shanahan for a young defenseman named Chris Pronger coming from the Hartford Whalers, a trade which proved to be a tremendous trade. But that trade really was no big deal compared to the trade he would make later. He would trade a series of, of lesser players and acquire the great one. Wayne Gretzky would become a St. Louis Blue. And Wayne Gretzky's wife, who was a St. Louis native, had a a certain pull and appeal for her husband to play in St. Louis, and he had made clear that he intended for St. Louis to be his last stop. The St. Louis Blues were set to be Stanley Cup contenders, not just for one season, but for many seasons to come. They looked unbeatable. They were reported to be unbeatable. They were becoming a dynasty. But reality was cruel. As you may or may not remember, the St. Louis Blues did beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in the first-round playoffs. We won't discuss that too much. We won't talk about Nick Kiprios diving into Grant Fuhr and injuring him. But the St. Louis Blues, though they were able to beat the Leafs, they lost in the second round to the Detroit Red Wings in Game 7. This team, which looked like a dynasty, it consisted of seven now Hall of Famers in the starting lineup, not only lost in the second round of the playoffs in 95 and 96, but the team almost immediately unraveled after the season ended. And you know why this team unraveled? It was because of infighting. 
coaches against players, players against coaches. It started when Brett Hall, the captain of the St. Louis Blues, lost his captain's C, and it was given to a newly acquired Shane Corson. Fighting took place about who was on whose line. There were interpersonal conflicts, not only between players, but also players and their significant others. The team unraveled, and the unbeatable dynasty was quickly defeated and dissolved. Listen, you don't have to be a sports fan to know stories like this. The most unstoppable, most productive team can be killed in an instant by infighting. Paul's wrapping up his letter to his lieutenant, his co-laborer, his protege, Titus. And he has argued, he has given Titus a hard assignment. And the assignment is he's on Crete, this island known for a toxic culture filled with lazy, lying beast, gluttons, as their own people refer to them. And he has told Titus, look, God is building a team. The team is called his church. And this team is something like an unstoppable dynasty. He's building this team all around the world, but he's building a location in Crete. And their goal is not to win the Stanley Cup, but to restore humanity to the glory with which it was created to manifest. Right relationship between God and uh, humanity, a right relationship between humanity and one another, neighbor with neighbor. He was, rest- he was creating a team that was going to put what was wrong to right, who was going to restore the chaos to order, to bring mercy to those who are need- needed, uh, mercy where it was needed, to push back the effects of the fall through the kingdom of God rolling out all throughout Crete. An unstoppable force for good, nothing could possibly stand in its way. And yet, as Paul concludes this letter, he's saying this, you know what will stop this all? Infighting. Getting distracted. Being divided. This will cause this team to dissolve like so many others. And listen, church history is filled with page after page after page of strong church. You know, church with lines full of future Hall of Famers. Churches which were beautiful outposts of the kingdom of God, capable of doing so much good. And within one and two generations, dissolving to nothing. And it almost always starts with distractions and infighting. Paul concludes this letter. He gives us something of of a strong conclusion here. And I believe he's going to give us three things that we need to avoid and two things we need to advance if we are going to be the people, the team that God has called us to be. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. Three things to avoid, two things to advance. So first, as Paul brings this letter to a conclusion and gives us these three things to avoid before he gives us the things we ought to advance, he first begins by saying the thing that we ought first to avoid is speculative controversies. We see this in verse 9. Now, we spoke a bit about this last week, but I feel as though I didn't give it uh, full attention as as I ought to. Paul is against speculative controversies, but he's not against controversies in general. I feel that needs to be said in Canada where something of an instinct has been created where we avoid conflict at all costs. This is unlike Jesus. It's almost impossible to find a page of his life where he wasn't involved in some kind of conflict. Conflict is part of the Christian life, but Paul is saying avoid speculative controversies. He gives specifics genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, these various Jewish debates which had leaked into the Christian church and had become an incredible distraction. Paul is saying these debates, they produce no profits. They're absolutely worthless. Why? 
because they are unable and they distract from the church's calling to do good works. These are the things which will sidetrack and derail the church. And Paul is concluding with this warning, a warning for the church community at Crete, and a warning I think we understand. So often Christians are people who feel as though their convictions are under fire, their faith is under fire, and the response is to be strong in the Lord, to have a strong faith, strong convictions about where you stand in a hostile culture. But I think we can understand what starts to unravel here. Anyone who is known for having strength can be susceptible to that strength impact being uh, polluted by their sinful heart. So the call to strength, meeting my sinful heart, results in a strongly imbalanced life, going strongly in, a, in the wrong direction. And this is what is happening, Paul is, is warning. This is what will happen in Crete. Paul knows our instincts. He knows our disposition to take things that we think and confuse those things with things that we believe God has said and give the zeal that we only ought to give to the things that God has said, to the things we think and make the whole thing a mess. This is what Paul knows will take place in the church. Listen, today we might not be worried about genealogies, but we sure are worried about worship styles, prophetic speculations, We're worried about all kinds of uh, civil attitudes, uh, certain dispositions towards the watching world and engagement with culture. There's fads which break into the church about alternative medicines and diets. Paul is giving Titus this final warning. Avoid speculative controversies. These things will rob the world of the good works that they rightfully deserve because God has put his dynasty team in Crete. It's not just, though, to avoid speculative controversy. Paul also says the church is to avoid divisive congregants. We see this in verse 10. Paul gives a sort of three-strike rule. First, warn them once, warn them a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. Now, it's tempting to read our cultural setting into Paul's wisdom here, saying, uh, you know, send them off to another church. They're not your style. There's another church that will have to take care of them. But that's not at all what's going on. Likely, there are no other churches other than those who are tied to the apostle. And what Paul is saying here is what we would call excommunication. He's saying these speculative controversies have the power to show that someone is useless, warped, self-condemned, their obsession with these side issues, these secondary issues, uh, can, can make someone worthless for the building project God is up to. Like a warped piece of wood, they will have no use in the hands of the carpenter. They will be unable to contribute any good works. And Paul says they must be removed from the church. Now, this sounds incredibly harsh. Kick him out of the church. Are we serious? Isn't the church a place known for grace, for being loving? Well, Paul knows this. He knows that humanity has a temptation to elevate giftedness over character. He knows that the church, not only in Crete, but also the church in our time, it consists of people who are incredibly attracted to giftedness, and we will turn a blind eye to character character, uh, deformities, character issues which are not in full bloom. Maybe another way to say it is, the church will always lift up leaders whose gifting outstrips his character. 
And Paul is saying, in the church, this is incredibly dangerous, especially when someone who's gifting is to teach these speculative issues and comes into the church and becomes a divisive person. This will derail the church. And in the same way today, if you have any symptoms of COVID-19, you cannot even come in our church building for fear that you might spread a virus a virus which actually we're, we're, the majority of us would be very likely to survive. But it is that terrifying the way that this uh, virus is spreading globally that we have to take it this seriously. Paul is saying this. These type of people that are obsessed with speculative controversies are so divisive when they come into the church. And people are so attracted to someone who's passionate, who speaks uh, articulately and clearly about something. They will be like a virus. They will end up taking the whole church down. Warn them once, warn them a second time. Have nothing to do with them. Listen, if this warning was important in the island of Crete at the turn of the century, how much more important is this warning in the age of the internet, where divisive teaching spreads so easily, where it is so tempting on YouTube to give a following to people who are into secondary issues and are making them the primary issue. Be careful, you too could be infected. So Paul says, avoid foolish controversies, avoid divisive congregants, And third, I think Paul actually says something buried in here that I didn't see for a while, but it's in a detail that has bugged me. He says, avoid pastorless churches. Now, this might not be immediately obvious to you, and it is a bit of a minor point. I'll concede it here. But Paul has been instructing Titus to appoint elders in every town throughout the island of Crete. And yet what troubled me is verse 12. Paul desperately wants to see Titus. And yet he tells Titus, that he will only be allowed to come and visit Paul, or he's recommending that Titus only come to visit Paul after the reinforcements arrive, after Tychicus and Artemis arrive, then Titus can leave his post and come visit Paul. Paul hasn't made up his mind which one he's going to send, but Paul is saying, do not leave without a co-laborer having arrived. Paul doesn't want a church, even a church with elders, to not have pastors working with those elders. He knows the church in Crete and the church everywhere is so incredibly vulnerable. They need focused care. Focused care of someone called to the office of pastoral ministry. I'm really convinced that is what's going on with Artemis and Tychicus coming to replace Titus. Now, I wasn't going to make a major point of this, but this week I noticed a Barna survey which reported that 38% of a massive survey of pastors in in the U.S. reported that last year they thought about quitting their job as a pastor. And this has been true in my friend network. I am absolutely shocked at how many of my good friends have less pastoral ministry and many of others who are considering it. Listen, we made all kinds of hay out of the story that 20%, maybe 30% of doctors in the middle of the pandemic were so burned out, they thought of changing professions and leaving their career. But a study has come out saying that pastors are up over that number. They're closer to 38, closer to 40%. Paul is saying Christians are people who need care who need pastoral leadership, who need accountability, who need people inspiring them to live godly and Christian lives. And I know it's incredibly awkward to hear this from a pastor, and it feels self-serving. But for the sake, not just of our church, but of the church around the world, and of the church our children will inherit, we need to be people committed to pastors 
the best of pastors raised so that we have good and healthy churches in the days to come. And this is something we must never take for granted. So what does Paul call Titus to avoid? He says, avoid speculative controversies. Avoid divisive congregants. Avoid pastorless churches. But now what does Paul want Titus to advance? And the first thing Paul tells Titus to advance is godly camaraderie. Now, where do we see this? Well, really, this, like so many of Paul's other letters, ends with him saying that he has a group of people with him, and they all send greetings to Titus and to the church that Titus is interacting with. This is, this is in verse 15. But maybe more specific, we get unique details here about Paul and what type of person he was. In verse 12, he's snowbirding, so to speak, in the city of Nicopolis, and he's asking Titus to come see him. I mean, this in some senses is saying, hey, I'm down in Florida, you know, for the winter. Titus, as soon as I can send a reinforcement your way, I need you to come be with me for a while. Now, this is similar to my analogy of coming to Florida, but even more difficult because travel to a city like Nicopolis would have been incredibly, uh, it would have been a difficult task. It would have been much harder than hopping on a plane, and it would have been much more costly. In some sense, is what Paul is asking for in a time where they're raising money for the poor and they're trying to start new churches could be deemed a waste of funds, maybe excessive. But Paul is saying this, God-honoring friendship, God-honoring camaraderie is something that cannot be delayed. It is something that is essential to his Christian walk, and we have to assume ours as well. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul reminds us that bad company corrupts good character. Maybe in this verse we're reading that Paul believes the converse is true as well. Good character has the potential to not corrupt good, good individuals, but to build up and to encourage individuals. Listen, ours is a culture that discusses very little about friendship anymore. You probably text or in group chats with numerous people, but do you truly have friends? The great missionary, pastor, theologian, Francis Schaeffer, was known for saying, we must all measure ourselves by our friendships. Apart from the scriptures, there is no surer measures to be had in this poor fallen world. That is incredible. Schaefer believed a mark of Christian maturity is a mark that this individual has good friends. The great uh, early church scholar Peter Brown, he's a scholar of St. Augustine, in his massive biography of the 4th century North African church leader, maybe one of the most important thinkers in the Western church and an incredible leader in the church, he devotes an entire chapter in Augustine's biography to Augustine's friends. And the first sentence of that chapter, a sentence I've maybe read a hundred times, says this, Augustine will never be alone. The chapter goes through all the friendships from Augustine's conversion to the very end of his life. The friendships which shaped him and made him the man that he was. Wherever he was, he thrived on having this Christian camaraderie. It was something that he needed. And Paul is saying this, listen, I have a company of friends around me. They send greetings. But Titus, I need you to come to me. He is showing forth his hand. He is committed to godly camaraderie. There are no lone rangers in the Christian life. Paul wasn't one. He's considered this sort of adventurous hero. He always has someone around him, and he always has people with him. Make it your priority. Do not think of yourself as a Christian lone ranger. You can't be. You need godly camaraderie around you. If you were to show me your calendar, would I see this as a priority in your life? 
Or would you look more like a nomadic, individualistic Christian trying to wind your way through this very difficult culture? Paul is saying we must advance godly camaraderie. But it's not just godly camaraderie we must advance. We can also say, Paul says, we are to advance godly commitments. Look at this in verse 13. Paul says, do your best to speed on the lawyer, to send the lawyer. His name is Zenos. His, this, this whole section, uh, you know, Zenos the lawyer sounds kind of slimy, kind of like a better call Saul ambulance chasing figure. But more than likely, Zenos is a man competent in the Roman law. His name means, you know, gift of Zeus. And Paul is saying, send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that they see me and see that they lack nothing. Sorry, they're not coming to see Paul. They're, they're continuing their missionary journey. And Paul is saying, see that they lack nothing. Maybe one way to translate verse 14 is this. Here is another way our people can learn to engage in good works, meet pressing needs, and not be unfruitful. See to it that Apollos and Zenos lack nothing. We know nothing of Zenos other than his name means gift of Zeus, which it's pretty incredible to think he is likely one of the first Christian missionaries. It's like a missionary named Muhammad being sent to an Islamic land. We know quite a bit about the man Apollos mentioned here, a Jewish man from Alexandria who was known for being eloquent and a great teacher in the early church. Many people were infected, impacted by his life. And Paul is saying this, if you want to see the believers devoted to good works, give them an opportunity, give them a practical chance. When Zenos the lawyer and when Apollos come through Crete on their way to their travels, see to it that they lack nothing. Tell your people to be prepared to roll out the red carpet. Make sure these two have every one of their urgent needs met. Paul wants us to advance godly commitments. And in this case, he's mentioning supporting these two missionaries as they work to advance the kingdom of God on this earth, to push back the effects of sin, to see restored relationships between God and humanity as the resurrection is announced all over the Roman world. Certainly, this would be a call that we would have to support missionaries and to support the church and its work and seeing the word spread. But I think Paul's point here and his point throughout the letter to Titus has been to push back the effects of the fall wherever you might find them. Use your resources, your money to invest in that which is good. Do good works. See the effects of the fall, the rot of sin, pushed back by meeting urgent needs wherever they come. Give generously of your time, money, talents, energies. Slam those into those urgent needs with your time, with your energy, with your talents and commitments. Work as diligently as possible that those needs are taken care of and show forth that the kingdom of God is coming. Just last week, a man that I have longed to bring to church, details I will share, I'll keep somewhat vague, and in an interaction I had with him, I discovered was a missionary kid. And he made a comment to me, which at first I found to be quite shocking, when he said, yeah, it's strange to be raised as a missionary kid. He's obviously turned away from the faith. And he said, Basically, it's strange to think that some kids in Africa basically have all of my inheritance money. He seemed somewhat bitter, but as the conversation went on, I could tell that the sacrifice his parents made, though he may have rejected their faith, still provokes him. And his comment about his inheritance being spent over Africa, in Africa was something he was saying not so much out of bitterness, 
but out of an acknowledgement that he is shocked that they would use what is rightfully theirs to bless people who they had no previous interactions with. This is why Paul wants to train up, uh, wants Titus to train up this congregation to be a people ready to do the good. He's telling them to be like a military, a militia that is on call, ready to do the good, commandos ready to go do good works wherever they come. Because when good works are done, when people give sacrificially for the needs of others, the watching world is provoked. Maybe the best example I can think of this is an article that uh, the old deputy minister of the Labour Party from in the, in the 80s and early 90s in the British Parliament, his name is Roy Hattersley, an article he wrote, some 700-word essay he wrote in the uh, Guardian, an article which took extreme guts, really highlights this fact that Christians have to be committed to godly commitments, and when we are, it provokes the watching world. Hattersley writes this, The arguments against religion are well-known and persuasive. This is his words, obviously not mine. Yet men and women who believe, uh, men and women who believe are the people who are most likely to take risks, make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe in heaven's existence. He goes on, the correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. Later in the article, he writes, it ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian, or at least better still, to take Christianity a la carte and still be an agent for good. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. He concludes, the only possible conclusion that I have come to, is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while they do not constitute the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me. When the church is committed to doing good works, to advancing godly commitments, this has and will continue to provoke the watching world. Paul ends his letter and his ending is critical. Grace be with you all. God's announcement of unmerited pardon be announced over you. God's smile, his personal favor be upon you. God's unending power be unleashed in your life to transform you. Listen, Paul sees the church as one of the means by which the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, this good news that we celebrate, this salvation which is broken into this world. Paul sees the church as one of the the means, the place we come to, the well we come to, to drink of that grace. And this is why Paul is saying you must avoid speculative controversies. They stand in the way of people drinking in that well of grace. You must avoid Uh, You must avoid divisive congregants who will divide up the congregation, these people who Christ has died for, who will take people's eyes off the cross and off doing good, but instead will turn their eyes towards these divisive uh, topics. You must take your eyes away from pastorless churches, for God has seen fit that through the means of the church, administered by pastors, grace will be drunk deep to all who will come to this well. If you want to see God's kingdom advance, you must be committed to godly camaraderie. Another place where the grace of God is going to be drank deeply as we interact with one another and see God's grace transform another and God uses others to transform us. This too will be the means by which grace comes upon us 
And we must be a people committed to godly commitments. The grace that transforms us must begin to make dents in the world all around us. If we are going to be a people rightly devoted to good works, beginning to end, we must never forget our identity is entirely of grace. Because without grace, without the cross, without the resurrection, you, I, we are nothing. This is the good news, though, we celebrate. We're not nothing. Grace has come to us. Grace be to you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.